Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Justin Dombrowski, author of Murder and Mayhem in Erie, PA. Justin Dombrowski is the author of Murder and Mayhem in Erie, Pennsylvania. Why did you write this book? Well, I wanted to write this book uh, for several different reasons. One is uh, being a uh, true crime fan, I would say, myself. I, uh, I majored in criminal justice at Mercyhurst University here in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, the plan was originally to go into uh, law enforcement. Um, ultimately, I did not do that, but the uh, I would say the desire um, to be interested in, in many different uh, cases, you know, from a historical nature and as well as local history kind of persisted. Uh, when I wrote this book, really, what kind of, I would say, preceded it was the fact that um, there, at least at the time, there were not really any major books that really delved into Erie's history uh, in regards to any kind of older cases or, or more infamous cases. Um, living here in Erie, of course, you know, there is the usual I would say collection of infamous cases, uh, darker cases that you know a lot of people will, will dredge up and, and you know remember from time to time, and it really kind of showed the impact that these uh, crimes had on the local community. And what piqued my curiosity is, is what was uh, I would say about the cases that we don't know, the older ones that have been kind of lost to time. So that kind of facilitated an interest in wanting to write something that. Today's, you know, local historians and individuals who, you know, are fascinated by local history would find surprising and something that would provide a new twist, I would say, on that area, area of, of local history. Now, you mentioned your, your interest in maybe getting into law enforcement when you were in school, that you did do an internship with the Erie County uh, Detective Unit. What, what was that experience like for you? That experience itself was very rewarding. Um, I remember... Uh, when it came time to do the internship that, um, you know, there's many different options. And that was when it really stood out um, just because at least from the description, from what I recall of it, it was not your normal run of the mill internship. Like there was uh, some individuals I was classmates with who did internship with the Erie city police. And I decided to go a different route and work with them. Um, that really provided a eye opening experience to be able to work uh, with uh, many different detectives, at least from the county level, um, you know, dealing with anything from assisting local jurisdictions, um, being able to get a real hands-on experience from dealing with prosecutors and, and the way the whole system uh, worked. It was really rewarding, I would say, at the time because uh, Brad Folk was the Erie County District Attorney here, and um, that was actually not too long before he had passed away, but at that time, Brad Folk, I would say, had a, a quality about him where he was able to get a lot of Erie's older unsolved cases um, back into the public eye. He had had quite success with 
being able to try some of those. And and Brad was really a advocate for victims, and and that really kind of stood out, and it really created an atmosphere uh, that going forward, especially with writing this book, um, I would say helped me kind of craft it in a way to where you know it gave that emphasis on you know remembering victims and those who were essentially impacted by the crimes. Um, you know, over and all, even though the internship was only a few months, it was a very rewarding experience. I got to see a side of law enforcement that not a lot of people were able to um, be, you know, exposed to. And it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for. Why did you pick these particular stories to include in the book? Well, in regards to the book, originally when the idea was um, presented to the History Press, uh, the plan was originally to go in, I believe, with over 20 different stories. Obviously, with the constraints with publishing and word counts and so forth, um, I was not necessarily able to really focus on all 20 of those. So those eventually, uh, what we did, uh, working with my managing editor and myself, uh, we kind of went through the different cases, picked out which ones would be, I would say, not necessarily the most sensationalist, um, but really ones that really stuck out. And that included, you know, there was a, a purported uh, train robbery that had occurred here. There was an explosion uh, that occurred at the Pennsylvania Railroad uh, or dock uh, right by the uh, Bayfront here. Uh, several of Erie's older unsolved murders, including um, that of the first uh, police officer killed in the line of duty for the Erie City Police Department. So they really were kind of handpicked um, really to kind of give a balance, I would say, between what we, me and my editor, being murder and mayhem. Um, so that way it kind of provided, I would say, a consistent different flow so that you weren't reading the same story more than once, you were getting something different with each chapter. So going from 20, we went down to about, I think about 10 or 15, and then that was gradually reduced to about six, which um, was within the parameters of what the publisher had set up. And that was essentially how we arrived at those uh, six gates. Now, one of the figures that appears in several of the stories is uh, Erie County Detective Frank Watson. He, he seems to have uh, been a bit of a character. What, what did you find out about him? Frank Watson was really, at the time, both loved and hated by uh, local newspapers in Erie. Um, from doing the research on him, Watson was a diligent investigator who knew what he was doing. Um, prior to being a county detective, of course, he had worked with the railroad and he had uh, quite a bit of experience, I would say, with that. Um, just being able to see how he functioned, I mean, he was noted as being shrewd, um, but yet reasonable in some aspects. And what really kind of stood out with him, I would say, as one of the central characters that you see in some of these uh, chapters is, for example, uh, the way he investigated the murder of Detective Sergeant James Higgins from the Erie City Police Department compared to how he then handled the unsolved murder of Manley Keene in 1909, which occurred, um, you know, four years after Higgins was murdered. It was really a interesting, I would say, perspective to see two different sides of how he was viewed by the press. Um, you know, you can make, I, I would say, you can make similar comparisons to law enforcement today. Um, you know, we see it all the time with uh, cases and investigations where, you know, if answers are not provided to the public in a timely manner, that can sometimes, you know, put 
I would say, investigators on the spot as to, you know, what they're doing, what the public feels they're not doing with an investigation. And that was really interesting to see from uh, that perspective with those two cases. But he really, you know, all the way up until he died in the 1920s, he was involved with some of Erie's um, more older infamous cases. And like I said, the the public, especially the newspapers here, had a love-hate relationship with him. When he did a good job, they praised him. Um, when the press felt that he wasn't doing his good job, they certainly lambasted him at every opportunity they could. Now, we, we live in a world, we live in a post-CSI world where we kind of expect really intricate and complicated skills by investigators, but uh, some of the stories in here, it, it seemed like that they, they really... Uh, was an earlier, more primitive period in terms of investigative techniques and technology. Right. Well, at, at the time, it was it was certainly fascinating because in early 1900s, Erie, you know, for the most part with their police department, they were pretty progressive. I mean, by I think it was around 1903, they had actually um, hired their first uh, first African American uh, officer to the force. Um, you know. Oh, it, but there were certain angles, and this is very evident with some of the investigations where, as progressive as Erie's police department was, there was also some angles that they were rather behind on. Um, you know, most, you know, by 1909, most police departments had invested in a Bertillion department with fingerprints and, you know, and so forth. Um, Erie at that time did not have that. They were kind of, I would say, behind the eight ball on that. And, you know, the fascinating perspective is, is you know, I usually tell this to individuals when I talk about these types of crimes is that had almost every single one of these crimes occurred in today, they probably would have been solved with the advent of, you know, like you said, uh, technology. Um, I think in a sense, we've become so used to being around um, forensic evidence such as DNA. And, you know, we have so much that that definitely benefits our law enforcement community today with being able to to solve crimes and, and, you know, hopefully achieve justice that, you know, we kind of forget that there is a time where police, you know, had to basically go off of as much circumstantial evidence as possible. And, you know, I, I think that definitely provides a very interesting window to the past for that. Now, one of the stories you tell is of uh, train number 41 of the Philadelphia and Erie Railroad in 1911. Uh, there was a robbery. What, what happened? So what happened with that is, as the train was making its way to Erie, it was on the outskirts of the city in an area of what today is known as Wintergreen Gorge. Um, pretty much what happens is there's a curve above the gorge, uh, which is what is still known as Five Mile Curve. Um, as the train came around the curve, um, there was essentially an obstruction in its path, and the engineer had essentially uh, slowed the train down. <laughs> Uh, managed to actually come in contact with the obstruction um, that was actually, um, you know, set up with some red lanterns to, to get their attention. The train was then boarded by uh, several masked bandits who were armed. And without really giving too much away, because this was one of those situations that when you really read uh, the newspapers from the time, it really kind of brings a, a sense of a story that you would read out of the Wild West, you know, here on, you know, the you know, eastern seaboard of the United States, which was, re which was really unheard of. And there was so much detail uh, that was able to be obtained from everybody who was involved. But ultimately what happened is that there was a shootout aboard the uh, the train. The bandits did uh, escape. 
Um, but the investigation into who was responsible was really remarkable at the time. And, uh, you know, including all the different agencies that were involved, uh, eventually located uh, several individuals who were responsible and brought them to justice. But the real amazing uh, part of that story is that, you know, and this is something that I found out while doing the book, is I have a, a very good friend who used to be with the Erie City Police Department. And his uh, wife, her grandmother, uh, was a orphan and was in a local orphanage here. Um, and there was a rumor that her, I believe it would have been her great-grandfather, was a criminal of sorts. And he went by the last name Winnecki. Well, ultimately, as you know, fate would have it in rather uh, unusual circumstances, one of the individuals that was eventually arrested and convicted for this uh, attempted train robbery turned out to be her great-grandfather. And, you know, we were able to provide additional research in that that not only made that connection, but it really kind of brought a unique perspective to show how, even though some of these crimes occurred over 100 years ago, uh, the impact that they still have on families today. You know, sometimes you'll have a positive impact. Some Sometimes other families, um, you know, will certainly not talk about, you know, some of these stories that have happened even after 100 years because of the impact it's had. Um, but all in all, that was definitely a case that it, when it occurred in 1911 was during a year where Erie was really kind of thrust into uh, the national spotlight. Uh, for example, in February, you had of that year, you had the desecration of the uh, mausoleum here at the Erie Cemetery, uh, which was then followed up um, with black hand letters that were sent um, to uh Charles Strong, and you know that you know brought in the you know several different uh, private investigating uh, groups. You know you had the Pinkertons involved. You had you know the Burns Agency, and you know there were several murders that had occurred in 1911, which also had really you know all the focus for that time being was on Erie. So I would say you know that was really an important case because at the time it was sensational. It made the news you know on both on, throughout the whole country essentially. Now, was, this particular case with the robbery, uh, I thought was interesting because there were so many different law enforcement entities involved here. You had Erie Police, the Pennsylvania State Police was involved. Uh, because the mail car uh, was robbed, the Postal Department had its investigators there. And then uh, there were railroad detectives, so some of the different railroad companies had, had detectives. Uh, were you surprised to find that, that many law enforcement entities involved in this? I was surprised to some extent um, because back then it was also a time where you would see other cases which appear in the book um, where agencies did not necessarily cooperate or share information. But from the federal aspect, it wasn't really too surprising, um, mostly because before you had the Federal Bureau of Information, actually probably one of the more premier departments uh, that would have actually operated during the time were postal inspectors. Uh, you know, they, they had pretty much a wide range to investigate. And this case was no different, especially, you know, since, you know, like you said, the United States mail was attempted to be robbed at that time. But it, it really kind of showed, you know, depending on the type of cases even back then, you know, which ones you would more than likely have cooperation from authorities on. And then, for example, with the attempted train robbery, you had numerous individuals, you know, um, and it was so, so crowded. You had, like, I think... It, it reads kind of as mayhem in a sense because everybody's stepping on each other's toes um, and, you know, doing all that. But it really kind of 
was something that kind of really kind of again it's one of the was one of the more fascinating parts of doing the book because it, it was really interesting to see how things you know worked back then but you can also make that perspective that you know we still see some uh law enforcement agencies work together today in the same way how did you do your research where did you have access to some of the original case files so in regards to some of the research um, any any cases that occurred before 1950 no longer exist. Those files are, are long gone or destroyed or, or disappeared. Um, and and I, I did have, you know, excellent cooperation from the Erie City Police Department. Um, you know, they were very opening, uh, open to answering all my questions and, and, you know, being able to look into stuff um, that had occurred, you know, so long ago. And um, beyond that, the only other really avenues is, you know, there was newspaper articles from the, uh, Erie Daily Times primarily, and you also have the Dispatch Herald. Uh, Erie County Historical Society does have a collection of criminal records, which were loaned from the Erie County Courthouse. However, those are really only your cases that are going to go to trial. If you're handling um, unsolved cases or cases that did go to trial um, but resulted in no conviction, you might find some records there. But for the most part, those records are pretty few and far between. Um, for the attempted train robbery at Five Mile Curve, there were federal records that were obtained from Philadelphia, um, you know, uh, National Archives, which came into handy. Uh, transcript no longer for that survives because, you know, back then, um, they really didn't save court transcripts. Um, so really, you know, I would say there wasn't too many, you know, official records and, and documents to go off of, but from what there was in terms of, you know, description from <clears throat> the newspapers and such, um, certainly provided enough info to be able to do that. And, you know, additional research that I've done as a genealogist helped me to track out additional records as well. So as you were reading some of the old newspaper accounts, uh, what, what did you find about how the newspapers covered these types of events? <laughs> so in regards to how the newspapers covered the events, here, here in Erie, it was very... Um, Unique. You had the Erie Daily Times, which was always certainly going to be um, more open and sensationalistic than compared to, let's say, for example, the Erie Dispatch Herald. Um, you know, there were cases that the Dispatch had where they would write about it for several weeks and then they would just focus on other stories in the Erie area, whereas you would have the, <clears throat> sorry, you would have the Erie Daily Times focus on um, stories for weeks and weeks on end. So there is a very clear different perspective between departments. Now, in some of these stories, uh, it seems like the crime scenes became uh, spectator events. People seem to find them almost as part of their social entertainment. Yeah, that certainly was, um, that, that certainly was prevalent, I would say. And it really, you know, like I said, the you could have a conversation going on and on about all these different cases and, and the impact that it had certainly on the public. Um, you know, with the murder of Manley Keene, for example, 1909, the fact that the crime scene was essentially still bloodstained up to weeks afterwards, people would, would go on trips, visit this location. And even, you know, some of these areas would, um, go on to be example of, you know, local hauntings and, you know, well into the 1950s and 60s where 
these stories that were so um, grotesque certainly had that much of an impact, I would say, on the public. And, you know, it, it certainly kind of plays into that aspect that, you know, as gruesome as some of these stories can be, you know, the public um, will always kind of gravitate towards being interested in something that is really associated with murder mayhem. And I think one of my professors has said it best, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, murder mayhem sells. So th these cases were certainly examples of that. Do you have a favorite story in this book? I would say um, out of all the different uh, cases that we write about in this book, probably the one, I wouldn't say favorite, but the one that I found the most interesting was the case of the Blackwood Potato Patch murder and um, the murder of Anthony Sparandio, which occurred during Prohibition. And the reason for that was that Erie during the 1920s um, was said to have been uh, you know, pretty much comparable to counterparts in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Buffalo. Um, in the effect that the only thing that was dry and eerie would, would have been the inside of a light bulb. Um, you know, that, that's pretty much prevalent if you read any kind of information from the 1920s about Erie's prohibition history. But that really, really was one of, I would say, the more gruesome and, and fascinating murders because it, it was a case where it involved Erie's uh, Italian community um, known as Little Italy. And what I was most fascinated about by that one was, you know, especially for example, if you read about current crimes uh, that occur in, in certain communities, especially here in Erie, we see it, you know, from time to time, is that police will mention that, well, so-and-so witnesses, you know, aren't cooperating or people aren't saying anything. And, you know, with today's society, and how everything is going, you'll see people, you know, make comments that are, um, you know, pretty much, I would say, uh, racially motivated. They won't come out and say it, but, you know, it is pretty straightforward that they kind of point fingers to a certain, you know, demographic. And what a lot of people forget, is, especially back in the 1920s, especially if you had, like, Erie's little Italy community, not a lot of people came forward with a lot of information. There were people who were scared and... Ultimately, at least from what I uncovered, people, uh, the police had a pretty good idea of who committed those crimes. They had a pretty good um, idea who was involved. And it really was an, an example that, you know, once again, you know, we're, at least with that case, we're about, you know, 100 or so years afterward, but we still share the same kind of parallels with today's society as back then. Um, but that one was interesting because I grew up on the east side here in Erie, and where the potato patch murder happened, I had walked past that location numerous times as a, as a kid, and you know it really was one of those things that, as time progresses, as you know the landscape here in and around the world changes, you know you're taken back in time to a place that no longer exists, and it really gives you a different perspective. So let's talk more about that case. Uh, who found the body in the potato patch? So with that, the body was discovered actually by two farmers who were heading um, to the market that morning. 
you're walking down Zimmerman, what it would be uh, today's Zimmerman Road, uh, spotted um, blood stains that were in the roadway. Um, they followed that to the potato patch nearby and found uh, burnt out remnants of what appeared to be a uh, an unknown male uh, that was partially burned from at least the waist up. And uh, that one was pretty gruesome because <clears throat> at the time, a lot of people, and this also was is another, again, uh, time and time again, when you read these stories, these parallels with today's society come up. And uh, it really kind of brings to uh, a comment somebody mentioned, well, back then things like that didn't happen because those were the good old days. And, and I kind of, there's a little bit of hogwash on that because what had happened is when that murder occurred, within a few days, photographs actually not only took photographs of the crime scene, but they were plastered on the front pages. So, you know, when, when, when I hear that argument about the, the good old days, I kind of disregard that because crime has always been around. You know, it's always been uh, front and foremost, uh, you know, available to us through, through any kind of media. Um, it's just more widespread now because of social media, everybody having phones and electronic access. But that really was a case where it really kind of showed, especially during Prohibition, uh, just the extent of, of, again, the sensationalist nature of the newspapers to deliver to the readers, uh, you know, about gruesome events that occurred. Now, uh, this is another case that Detective Frank Watson was involved in. Uh, did they, were there extensive clues at the scene? How, how did they proceed in the case? With that case, he, he was, he, he, that was one of the cases that he was indeed brought on to an extent um, because the district attorney's office was involved. The only evidence that they really found was a was a blood encrusted boilermaker's hammer, which was found near the uh, where the body was found. You had uh, blood stains in the roadway that were leading to the body, and there was some evidence that had been found on the body that indicated to the police that robbery was not a motive. I mean, the individual uh, was definitely not wealthy by any means. Um, there were also witnesses in the area the night that the murder, uh, police believe the murder occurred. Um, and, you know, some of the descriptions of a unique touring car led them to who was eventually developed as the prime suspect in that case. Um, but you had numerous, I would say, evidence that had occurred with that. Again, you kind of go back to the fact that, you know, we're talking about an era where it was all purely circumstantial. Today's In today's world, that case, you know, likely would have been solved. There would have been... Uh, you know, a wealth of forensic evidence that would have been available to police. Um, there was also a uh, water bottle that was found nearby that was actually also found along with a piece of a sumac tree that had actually been burned. And what police believed is that um, the individual, once he was bludgeoned over the head with the boilermaker hammer, um, dragged into the field and set on fire, that when either the murderer or one of the perpetrators who assisted in that crime tried to take a branch and stir the flames up to try to destroy as much evidence and in the process possibly burn themselves. So, and, and the one thing that we also need to keep in mind is we're also going based off the evidence that the police released. You know, back then, as open as they were with reporters and the public, um, police still held back certain things of evidence. And that was indicated somewhat in the newspaper articles as well as is that they had additional circumstantial evidence and at the time, it was just up to the district attorney uh, to be able to prosecute it. 
Now, there was a, another case that you write about, the murder of Manly Keene, and one of the figures that shows up in that case is a, a very famous private detective, Mary Holland. Who is she? So Mary Holland at the time in 1909 uh, was referred to as being essentially the female Sherlock Holmes. She had worked with uh, Alphonse Bertillon in France. She had assisted cases uh, with the help of Scotland Yard. Um, she worked with the Chicago Police Department. And she was well known for, for traveling the country and championing, uh, you know, Bertillon departments that had, at the time uh, were viewed as uh, cutting edge and groundbreaking in terms of criminal investigations. So when this occurred in 1909, uh, Mary Holland was very well known. She was well written about. She was well regarded uh, in a lot of police circles. Um, there were numerous instances and cases where she was involved in where she received the utmost cooperation from you know different police departments. And she was respected um, in a time where women were not really given, you know, a, 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 as much credit as they should have been. You know, this is, you know, certainly around, you know, before the time of, of the suffrage movement. So, you know, for her to essentially rise to the ranks in, in, in the law enforcement community at the time, working with these different jurisdictions, you know, she was a really well-known, well-respected female detective. However, as readers will find out, once she came to Erie, there was a, there was a different power struggle that had occurred with, with local law enforcement jurisdictions, of course. But at the time, you know, when, when she was brought to Erie to help work with the case, you know, courtesy of the Erie Daily Times, it was really revealed as a groundbreaking moment for here at Erie because it was not really something that the city was used to or expected. Um, but for the most part, she was a real powerful character that was kind of thrust into a situation which, again, um, really remains one of Erie's more bizarre unsolved murders. So was she brought in by the newspaper itself? Was it, was it some kind of stunt? It was viewed. Trying to think here. It was viewed by the uh, the Erie Dispatch as being a stunt, just because the Erie Dispatch was one of the main competitors with the Erie Daily Times. Um, the Erie Daily Times had actually paid for Holland to come, and they brought her on to the investigation because they felt that the investigation was being stymied to the point that the police were not doing anything. And by bringing Holland onto the case, the Times had hoped that you know it would not only be able to shed some light on the murder which had concerned the city um but really kind of lay waste to the issues that were going on in the department at the time um as i had stated previous you know this was also a time where in this case is perfect evidence of it where certain departments didn't really cooperate and after holland was brought on to the case um it really kind of highlighted the issues in the Erie City Police Department and, you know, where they were inadequate in terms of criminal investigations. In, in a sense, you could say it was a stunt, but in the end, it worked out because from that point on, um, Erie City Police Department was actually provided with information that helped them, you know, at least for the time being, uh, improve their methods uh, for criminal investigations. Now, since she was brought in by a newspaper, was uh, did you find articles that they were regularly writing about her and, and her activities? Yes, absolutely. So, um, as I stated before, the Erie Daily Times wrote about the Keene murder almost daily. And it was ironic because the Erie Dispatch, once Mary Holland was brought into the case, they didn't write about her at all. Because, obviously, their competitor had, you know, done this what they call publicity stuff. So, what had happened was not only was 
Mary Holland brought onto the case in that extent, but she also wrote articles for the Times, updating the public as to what she was able to reveal, um, what leads she was working on, and where she saw the investigation. You know, and this included um, the fact that Mary Holland really didn't. Um, she didn't really. I, I would say. She stood up the criticism very well, and whenever there was issues that she saw fit, she approached it and, you know, confronted it head on. It was pretty apparent when the Erie County coroner um, had not done an autopsy on Manley Keene's body, something that Mary Holland was simply aghast at, and, you know, it created an uproar within the city. And, you know, that was, again, it's another example of, you know, how our local history kind of changed, because after that, especially with the state legislator here in Pennsylvania, um, you know, autopsies were almost a, a given after that, after some state laws were passed. How did uh, Manley Keene's family uh, respond to Mary Holland coming into the case? At first, um, Keene's family was very cooperative, including uh, that of his cousins, John and Albert Kelso, where the crime scene occurred and, and the individuals who were last on the scene Keene alive. I would say that after she had come aboard the case, of course, you had this sensationalist nature from the public. You had people visiting the crime scene, which was essentially still uh, private property belonging to Keene's cousins. Um, so after a while, I, I would say they kind of soured at the idea, uh, not only that, but the investigation as a whole, and eventually obtained an attorney um, forbid people, you know, people, when this all occurred, it was also fascinating. People were just roaming onto the, uh, the Kelso farm, farm says they're looking themselves for any kind of information they could find any kind of evidence. And, and after a while, the, the family eventually shut themselves off to the reporters, including, uh, Mary Holland. And, and it kind of leaves a lot to be desired, you know, to the extent as to, you know, what they provided. Uh, I know that at, at first when Mary Holland arrived, she was allowed full access um, from the family, at least from the Kelso families, um, to the area, looking up evidence. Um, but, you know, as the, as the time progressed, she eventually received the same treatment as the police that the family did not want to be bothered unless something you know, absolutely certain um, would, would bring Keene's murderer to justice. Now, you mentioned earlier that you're a, a genealogist. Uh, how did you get involved in that? So uh, genealogy has always been a uh, fascination on my side. Um, on my father's side, uh, my ancestors came over from Poland, and you know it really was something that I would say well over you know 10, 15 years ago I started getting into you know doing research, uh, eventually even traveling to Europe and, and doing extensive research there, research there with Polish, Russian, uh, Latin, German records. So being able to do that build up, I would say, a record of, you know, genealogy, a genealogy experience, um, something that I always found fascinating. And, and this worked in perfect with this because, you know, there are some records and in, in relationships and being able to find out with some of these stories what happened to certain individuals once they disappeared from the front pages also kind of helped aid me in my investigation and um, in being able to write about these cases. Now, uh, one of the stories you tell is of the murder of Detective Sergeant James Higgins. Who was he? So James Higgins was the first Erie City police officer killed in the line of duty. And he was murdered in front of 
what used to be uh, Central High School, which was then located downtown uh, on Sassafras Street. And Higgins's murder uh, was really one of the first times that you know the city of Erie and the police department was faced with an enormous manhunt looking for uh, a murderer who had murdered one of their own. And Higgins was a well-respected police officer and investigator. In fact, Higgins' Higgins's personality was such that when prisoners at the Erie County Prison had heard that Higgins was murdered, they, they requested that they also be uh, allowed to help search for the killer. Now, whether that's kind of romanticized or, or so on and so forth can be uh, left open for debate. But Higgins was well-respected from numerous individuals. And again, um, that brings in the first time, that, at least in the book, that you're introduced to County Detective Frank Watkins, who viewed Higgins as a uh, friend and you know fellow law enforcement officer who he had worked on. Um, Higgins had also been involved in uh, several other cases that had occurred here in Erie. Uh, was well respected within the department. Um, he originally was born in New York, um, and you know his death really kind of shocked the community, and was that first moment for the city to kind of, you know, experience, you know, not only like a, a manhunt of that type, um, but really the effect that it also exposed Higgins's family to, um, you know, we're talking about a time before there was any life insurance policies. And, you know, essentially when a police officer died in the line of duty, the spouse really did not have much. And the city of Erie really stepped up and supported Higgins's widow and his family. So it really kind of speaks to the mentality and the personality of, of Detective Higgins and, and the legacy that he had left when he was murdered. Now, you, you quote an Erie Dispatch headline that says, red-haired men must watch out. As they were doing this manhunt, were they singling out red-haired men? Yeah, specifically they were. Uh, before Higgins died, he did give a, at least as much as he could uh, with the extent of the wounds that he had sustained. He, you know, he gave a basic description that the individual who murdered him was a young white male, uh, red hair. And, you know, at least the way that the book describes it, I mean, it really didn't seem like too much to go on. But again, um, you know, we're talking about a time where individuals like, you know, County Detective Frank Watson were well enamored and familiar with Erie's underground criminals. And at the time, what happened is, is most of the men who were primarily stopped is, is those who were matching the description of young white male, early in the mid-20s, uh, red hair, chestnut-colored hair, if you want to say. And, you know, essentially, like, you know, the way that the articles describe all the way from Dunkirk, New York, even all the way down to Newcastle, Pennsylvania, you had additional uh, police departments that would wire and communicate with the Erie City Police Department and say, well, so-and-so committed a, uh, a crime here. He matches the description of Higgins' murder. And... Uh, you know, it, it, it really, it, essentially, it is an example of profiling, but they were also going based off of what Higgins was able to describe before he died. Now, you also write in the book uh, about uh, the conflicts between unions and businesses and how that, that often led to uh, explosions and, and uh, other criminal activity. What, what did you discover there? So with that case that had occurred at the, at the Pennsylvania coal dock, um, that occurred in 1911. That was really a fascinating situation because at the time, um, this is when the country was dealing with the rising power of, of unions. And what had happened at the time when that explosion occurred, 
is there were numerous explosions that had occurred throughout the country, especially in this area, New York, Pennsylvania, and especially in Ohio, where uh, there are specifically, you had railroad bridges, you know, infrastructure that was tied to, to shipping and transportation that were specifically targeted. And the culmination of that and the possible connection, you know, um, to the explosion of the Los Angeles, um, you know, I believe it was the Examiner building, uh, really kind of showcased, uh, you know, the veracity of, of, you know, union officials at the time where, you know, there was just this, this open warfare uh against the general public and you know you had hundreds of individuals who, who died from some uh, such instances luckily here at Erie the only damage was to the the property itself there was no injuries or nobody was killed luckily um, but it really kind of showed again into perspective you're dealing with a world that doesn't exist as as it does today and even back then it was still potentially dangerous and Erie had a history with you know dealing with um, issues with unions and, and different kind of factions and it, it was really a fascinating case not only that but to really again to kind of hit on different types of law enforcement agencies that were involved that one was a little bit more difficult because we really don't have too much information about it nobody was ever brought forth and prosecuted for it um, but the information at least that was out, outlined towards the end of the chapter really kind of designated who they felt was likely responsible and all the evidence and you know everything circumstantially certainly amounts to that the unions were involved with that explosion to that extent now they uh, what we're looking at there is the the uh, explosion of uh, a coal trestle on a dock so I mean how big was it and uh, did, did it collapse the entire trestle it didn't collapse the entire trestle. Um, only portions of the trestle were damaged, um, but the explosion was such that some of the steel girders actually were thrown into the air and almost actually had they, I, I believe the way the article described, had they been you know, several feet off or any closer to one of the ships that were more nearby, it probably would have hit the ship and probably would have killed the crew. Um, there is extensive damage to the coal trestle itself. It didn't, didn't demolish it or anything, but eventually um, I believe they did rebuild uh, that portion of it. Um, it, it, it wasn't really, I would say, a, a, a terrific explosion to where it would have uh, completely, you know, dismantled everything for sure. I mean, it, it was a pretty, pretty, uh, I would say, large explosion for the most part, but it, it didn't really dismantle anything. Um, but, but there was still obviously sufficient enough damage that, that rendered the services at the, the ore doctor inoperable for the time being. What types of explosives were used? I believe with that one, they used, I want to say they used nitroglycerin. So you had, you know, so, some of these explosions that would have occurred with the nitroglycerin, um, you know, different types of explosives. I believe the explosives that they actually had traced um, for that, they had, you know, determined that it was not any explosives that were used here, uh, you know, for any kind of dredging or anything like that. It was something that was brought from out of town. And you know, they were able to determine that um, based off of the types of explosives that were used, like, for example, in coal mines and everything that were probably down south by, by Pittsburgh. But there was the, uh, the part of the chapter that goes into discussing the, uh, the type of explosive that they believe was responsible and what it looked like. Um, and they were able to find examples of, uh, you know, 
they were able they were able to actually uncover evidence after the explosion um, as to how it was set up. You know, the fuse that was used, how much time you know the attackers would have been given to to flee, so that way they, you know, were able to get away in time, so nobody could see them. What do you like about true crime? What, what, why are you drawn to it? So I, I think what draws me uh, most to true crime, um, especially is the angle of everybody loves a good mystery. Everybody loves to be able to hear about a story and think, well, what can I look into that that nobody else has thought of? Or, uh, you know, what can I bring to this type of story uh, that brings a unique spin to it? And, you know, that was really kind of evident, at least with this book, because we're dealing with cases that, again, nobody alive today knows really about most of these. Um, probably the only case that I wrote about that the public was probably aware of is the murder of the Piggins, because we have a memorial um, downtown, you know, with his name inscribed on it. But beyond that, it was, you know, something that, you know, my interest in true crime, being able to look at, you know, different stories and mysteries and, and see what else we can add to it that was not known back then, what evidence we can uncover today, which is probably minimal compared to what we have available, um, really brought a lot of these cases again to the forefront for the first time in over a hundred years. And, you know, at least what fascinates me with true crime is being able to do that with a, you know, a local history spin to it. Uh, talk a little bit more about the local history. How did you become interested in local history? Well, I was born and raised here my entire life. Um, you know, ever since I was young, I've always been fascinated with history. And, you know, it, for me, you know, being able to be downtown, being through different parts of the city, hearing about stories, you know, not just about true crime, but eerie history itself, you know, ever since the city, you know, was founded long before that, being able to be able to stand in those places and envision what happened back then. Um, uh, again, being able to go back to a time you know, where things did or didn't exist or the different perspectives that occurred. So, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, it's definitely something I've, you know, become more appreciative of. And it, it's something I've always just found endlessly fascinating, just learning more uh, about the city because every single day it's like anymore, you can really find things that, you know, it, it always keeps you on your toes and it's something new every day um, that not only myself, but there's hundreds and hundreds, you know, thousands of others who live in this area who are just as fascinated by it, who offer, you know, different perspectives and stories. And it's something that keeps, you know, keeps me wanting to learn more. What do you hope people take away from this book? Well, first and foremost, I hope that what people take away from it is that just because you're dealing with uh, crimes and stories that are really gruesome and graphic in nature, um, that people were still essentially affected by it. You still had individuals who never received justice who have been forgotten. And those individuals deserve to be remembered. Um, you know, the legacy they left behind, the families and heartbreak they left behind, like I said, some which are still um, felt even today. Um, there was a, I believe there was a niece of uh, Detective Higgins who had uh, mentioned that she was looking forward to reading the book. And I know that from past newspaper articles with their family, uh, when he was, uh, you know, received a uh, award from the Erie City Police Department, that family uh, sustained a lot of uh, heartbreak after Higgins was murdered. You had um, also a relative of Chief Police, uh, Police Chief Detzel, who was also featured prominently in the book, uh, 
you know, members of his family reached out and advised that they are looking forward to reading it. And I, I hope that what people can take away is again, just because these stories happened over a hundred years or so ago, doesn't mean that the impact isn't still felt today. The impact that hasn't changed the community, you know, is still prevalent there today. Uh, you know, for example, again, going back to the Erie City Police Department, how they do investigations. A lot of the stuff that spearheaded them where they are today with how they handle crimes happened back around the time of the Manly King murder when Mary Holland came in and, you know, the department had to be revitalized because of uh, flaws with how they investigated and approached claim or, you know, crimes. And, you know, first and foremost, that true crime is essentially local history. You know, a lot of books these days don't focus on it, but it, it, it is true. And, you know, true crime is, is local history and the impact that it does have on a city can, you know, be instrumental. It can be minor, it can be major. Uh, but it's definitely something that should be continue to be studied for years to come. And we've been talking about the book Murder and Mayhem in Erie, Pennsylvania. Justin Dombrowski, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.